Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is our last class studying the work of J.R.R. Tolkien, and I want to explore something that isn't often talked about, which is the absence of overt sexuality in Lord of the Rings. In fact, Tolkien wrote a lot of erotic material, but most of it didn't find its way into the finished text. Today, I want to read you some of the elf poetry he wrote. Excuse me, Mr. Harris? Yeah, what is it? Are you sure this is a good idea? I mean, we're just ninth graders, and I, for one, you know, I really treasure some of the innocence in Tolkien's work. Look, I know what I'm doing. I'm the teacher, right? Okay. This is written by an elf, maybe Legolas. It's titled... To my coy elf mistress. Because I am an elf, I have three, and I live forever. So when I, you, it's going to be like the cracks of doom. I'm so glad I'm not a hobbit with a little tiny. Because you, and I need, so I can. Mr. Harris. Uh, what is it now? This... It's upsetting me. I don't really want to think about elves doing this. You make me sick. Your generation and your trigger warnings and your safe spaces and your self-infantilization, that's not going to cut it in the real world, where elves are getting down and dirty and doing the nasty. Mr. Harris, elves, they don't really exist in the real world. <laughs> they, they don't? No. Okay, then. Well, class dismissed. Today on the nose, Chinese dancing grannies, English teachers, and frat boys all in a world of trouble. And now he wants to read Harry Potter's homoerotic ode to Dumbledore, Colin McEnroe. And I want to read it to you. Um, all right, so we will be talking a little bit later about um, a poem that maybe never should have, but maybe should have been read aloud in class in South Windsor in lots of other ways that people got in trouble, some of them teachers, some of them students, um, but we're going to be, we thought we would begin, well, first of all, I'm going to introduce the panel to you, but uh, we're, we're also going to begin, we thought we would begin with the least familiar story. Like, you kind of know these other stories. People get in trouble, and then they try to get out of trouble, and there's kind of an American pathway that they, that they journey on. Uh, so we thought we would begin by telling you a story that you don't know as well, because it's from a different culture, and where things are handled differently. Uh, so uh, we're going to tell you the story of the Dancing Grannies, which I think maybe you, you, may, you may not know. Um, but first of all, let's begin with, um, with introducing the panel. So uh, she's from the Mark Twain House, where she does something incredibly important. She will someday be a Taiwanese-American Dancing Granny. She's already laying the groundwork. Uh, she's Tracy with Fastenberg. And of course, the musician and produ producer most beloved by the Dancing Grannies of China, uh, Jim Chapdelaine. And uh, she's got the dancing part down. The granny part will come as well. She'll never be Chinese. Uh, Irene Papoulis from Trinity College. So that's who's here today. Um, and, and let me tell you, uh, let me set the stage a little bit for you. So as the New York Times wrote this week, the offenders, the offenders usually emerge at dusk, occupying prime real estate in public plazas or parks as they sashay to treacly Chinese pop tunes with their synchronized dance moves. 
in recent years, these cardigan-clad packs of, quote, dancing grannies, as they are known, have descended on tranquil neighborhoods across the city, occasionally provoking virulent responses from local residents who object to their amplified music. Uh, in 2013, a Beijing man seeking to chase off retirees dancing near his home was arrested after he fired a shotgun in the air uh, and set three Tibetan mastiffs on the group. That same year in the city of Wuhan, angry neighbors dumped feces from the upper floors of a building onto a troop of gray-haired women below. So um, the story goes on to tell what the, what the government has tried to do about these um, adorable dancing ladies. They're not all women and they're not all grandmotherly age, but that's you look at it, it's the preponderant demographic for this. So uh, Irene Papoulos was the one who seized upon this uh, and very early on said that it should be the focus of some of our attentions. Tell us why that is. What intrigued you about this? All right. Well, a couple of things. The first one is just the 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 just the image of I love the idea of dan- of women, especially older women, going outside in their cardigans and dancing joyfully in the street. You know, and one of them was wearing, as the New York Times said, a blue spandle, spangled spandex top. You know, and they said it's better than watch than sitting home watching TV. You know, what's not to like about that, about all these, you know, these women doing that and being fit and it keeps them fit and it's great for their health, et cetera. Um, but, and then I was interested in the reaction, you know, first of all, the, 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 you know, throwing feces at people, that's pretty extreme, you know, that people were so against it. And so the government's response is not to say you can't do it, you know, not to, not to sort of ban it, but they didn't like it, so they decided that you, you can only do these 12. We're going to give you 12 particular dances that you can do, and you can only do those 12 dances. And each dance has to be uh, taught to you by a certified instructor. You know? So I thought that's just such an interesting, first of all, the idea that dancing is somehow a threat to the system which actually reminded me, if anyone remembers, I have to say as a parenthesis, Alan Bloom's book from, it was probably the 80s, The Closing of the American Mind. Everybody read it, and it was a big thing. And he had a chapter in there about rock and roll, about how, that that people didn't talk about as much as I wanted them to at the time, but it was about how rock and roll dancing is basically the end of civilization because people get into these wild herds and they have like this sort of spiritual, you know, experience and it's really, um, it's a real threat to the culture. And so I thought that somehow the idea that unregulated dancing is a threat to culture, I find really interesting. And yeah, okay. Which he yeah. said that reminded me of. I thought she was going to say Footloose. I was going <laughs> to say Footloose too. Yeah, yeah, the Chinese Footloose. I, did, yeah, I didn't I see Alan Bloom coming. <laughs> well, Alan, Alan Bloom plays uh, Kevin Bacon, right? Right. So, well, you know, he's three degrees from Kevin. Right. right. But he really thinks it's threatening, you know, and I think it is. You know, it's sort of true. Even though I love dancing, I, I understand that it is. It can be a threat because it's kind of out of control and exciting. To me, that's a good thing. But to some, to people in control, that could really be a bad thing. The only well, time it's really a threat is when you're playing a wedding and uh, there's copious amounts of alcohol <laughs> being served. Um, and uh, so, Tracy Wu Fastenberg, you get to say things like this, but uh, so one of your responses was, that's so Chinese. When you're talking specifically about the government's response to this. Yes, I'm talking about it's so Chinese, it's so mainland China, because um, if you think about the way that China's sort of controlled its culture over the years, it's been, we're going to prescribe things for you. You, know, you can be an artist but here's the art you're going to do. You can be a an athlete, but here's the sport you're going to be good at. Um, and so we're not going to tell you you can't dance. 
but we're going to tell you how to dance and who can teach you and where you can do it and probably at some point what the appropriate costume is. Um, and, you know, and I should say that my grandparents left mainland China when the communists took over. They were more of the nationalist persuasion, so I may be a bit biased here. Um, but it just seems so – what else would you expect you know, and I think it's interesting, the idea of commodification, you know, because Marx talked about commodification, that you take something that isn't for sale and make it for sale. You know, so dancing isn't for sale. But you, so you're not, they're not necessarily making it for sale, though I don't know how they train the instructors, but they're making it. So it's like power. It's not for financial necessarily uh, use, but it's for, it's for the, the exercise of power to control exactly how people dance. Well, yeah, and if we're going to invoke Alan Bloom, we should, now you should invoke Theodore Razak. Isn't he the one who talked about how, you know, any, things tend to be get co-opted, the things that people are kind of doing on their own yeah. get, uh, get, get sucked in uh, to the culture. So, you know, uh, Jim Chatterley, one thing that I was also thinking is, ultimately, though, what the government's really doing is kind of harnessing this, right? I mean, this is something that people like to do. They like to dance. So rather than crushing it, the government – I think they may be kind of clever in a way saying, well, we certainly are not going to tell you not to dance, but you're doing the wrong dances. Yeah. You have to do the dance of – we've, we've got a bunch better dances you for you. Yeah. The, the, there's an Arthur Murray over there making a bundle of money. <laughs> um, I, I am uh, speaking uh, about a week before my daughter departs for China and I would like for her to return. So uh, – I think whatever the Chinese government is doing is totally appropriate. Um, <laughs> but I do find it interesting that the backlash of this is basically the response that the grannies have had and they've sort of rebelled as much as they can in a really funny way by basically becoming kids from the 1960s. They, they've reenacted, uh, they don army clothing and they reenact scenes to uh, nostalgic war movies where they capture the bad guys, meaning the Germans and the Japanese, and they play music too loud. So those are the things we did as kids and that our parents yelled at us for doing is playing with guns and playing music too loud. So somewhere now their kids are yelling at them for doing the things they And they're our age, you know, they're the they're the baby boomers. Right, right. What actually was really surprising to me is that, you know, it's such a it's such a culture, the Chinese culture is very much based on respecting your elders. Well, exactly. So yeah, reading, you know, that people were dumping feces on these mainly well, just once <laughs> just that one time. Yeah, yeah. And that's a new know, form of respect. So, oh, oh, okay. All right. Yeah. So I, I had not heard about that, so you know, it's all okay. Um, but it just threw me that this this culture that's steeped in, you know, respecting your elders, this piety has sort of turned on them that in this is. way because they're just way too subversive with their dancing. Exactly. You're, or you respect your elders until they run out in the street and start <laughs> dancing. <laughs> so, to me also, it's it, 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 the, the parallel track about all this, or the thing that I, I really started thinking about it, and I did put it on the show page at WNPR.org too, is that one thing that's going on, I mean, where else are pe- do f- people feel overly regimented and oppressed? American public schools. Um, or and, Zumba class. <laughs> right. And, but one thing that's going on a lot in American public schools these days, and there's, there's one, I put one up that's from the A.C. Maceo, AC Maceo Smith, tech, you know, A. Maceo Smith uh, New Technical School. It's a school either in or near Dallas, Texas. Uh, but you, you've seen this before. You see it all the time now where students and faculty do this kind of flash mob style dancing. They, this is to uptown funk. They're not especially good, but there's something they're – you know, and but they're being led by a teacher, and it's everybody sort of out in the halls doing this dance. And you realize that it's a tremendously effective way of building spirit. 
and and letting people kind of cut loose in this very Dionysian way. It's also way. a brain break, which is a very fashionable kind of way of giving your brain a two or three minute rest during the day. Yeah, but that one was more than two. You know, that one, they, they had it so well organized and choreographed mm-hmm. and everything. So that was like a giant brain break, you know. Which you'll, you'll notice that my comments today on this <laughs> subject are going to be very vanilla right now, <laughs> until this trip is over. He doesn't want to give anybody oh, any material. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, well, I mean, just to make a segue here. So what we're seeing, dancing is, I, I, first of all, I should say, I have about 10 methods of processing reality. And I just try to kind of you know, space them out on this on these episodes so it's not obvious that I only have 10. So one of the ways that I look wow. at reality is Dionysian versus Apollonian. Uh, so, and so Dionysian obviously is, uh, favors chaos, uh, favors impulse, favors disorganization, favors creativity. Apollonian is much more uh, about organization, structure, uh, order, uh, and, and you sort of need both intention to have a civilization. So obviously, but anyway, this, in China you see this Dionysian activity of dancing uh, and as much of an Apollonian framework as can be put on it is being put on it. I mean, they're pretty Apollonian in their style of dancing to begin yeah, with. Yeah, they're not really whirling dervishes no. out there. It's, nobody's <laughs> no. shaking their booty. They're not grinding or anything. There's, there's no booty-licious stuff <laughs> so, happening. No, yeah. they are not crazed mynads. But I think uh, that is why it's threatening. It's because of the idea that it's Dionysian, you know. And and I, I think it's I, – I just – I'm always – Surprised at how threatening that is. Well, so, you know. wait till they get to the Chinese twerking. That's <laughs> just a matter of time, right? Twerking grannies. So, so let's make uh, the jump from the the dancing grannies to another sort of Dionysian versus Apollonian moment, and that happened in a school in South Windsor, uh, and uh, it involved a poem. Uh, by Allen Ginsberg, not probably the poem by Allen Ginsberg that you know best. It's called, this poem is called Please Master, um, an English teacher uh, at South Windsor High School. Um, I believe this poem is actually brought in by a student uh, and s- who was suggesting that it be read in class, and that's he thought different. about it. Yeah, he, he that's, thought, hmm? That's a, that's a new slant for me. I, I believe it was brought in by a student. I think I read that somewhere. Uh, and, but anyway, he decided that he would read this poem aloud in class, and it got him in so much trouble uh, that his career is kind of dangling by a thread. I think he has been suspended. Uh, there was a piece in the paper today. They're still trying to figure out what to do about this. Um, and so... One of our other fellow regular nose panelists, uh, Rand Cooper, called my attention to this, and he, he said, you know, it's one of those things where he and his wife were reading about it, and they were getting outraged, outraged. Somebody's reading a poem, a poem by a great poet like Allen Ginsberg, and they're getting suspended? What is this, 1952? This is nuts, you know, that, and then they read the poem, and it was like, oh, well, um, <laughs> you know, well, I, maybe we still think that, but we don't think it quite is as vehemently uh, as we did before. Because when you read the poem, it really is. Um, we are not going to read any of the poem to you. Let's, let's, I'll just begin by saying that. We are not go- you going to. You can find it online. Right. You can find it online. You can find it on your own. It is a, descri- it is a very homoerotic description of, or by one man saying what he wants another man to do to him. And, and well, no to him, I think, as opposed to with him, really. But anyway. Um, do, we, do we know? It, I know this is an AP class, but we, do we know what, what, what age, what grade? Well, it's a, it's a high school class. It's an AP class. I mean, you know. Early seniors. Yeah, I mean, I, I think yeah. we can safely assume junior seniors. Um, and, and, but I don't know. Well, first of all, let's go. We should say that the teacher who's gotten in all this trouble, I believe, is a graduate of Trinity College. Uh, <laughs> though he did not necessarily take Irene, uh, Irene's class in themes in Allen Ginsberg's poetry. But he, but he took dancing. <laughs> he did take dancing. <laughs> um, and... 
So I don't know. Did you have that reaction? I mean, you're you're you know you're a believer in literature and, uh, and, and Dionysian and Dionysian uh, literature. Yeah. Um, I um, when I first read the poem, I thought, wow, I I would have trouble teaching this poem. But then I started to because it's very graphic. I mean, it's very explicit about every line begins with "Please, master, please, master, do this, do this," and um, and it's you know there's something that's that seems pornographic about it, you know, just in the sense that it's written to sort of titillate, maybe titillate the reader or whatever. But then as I, th- as I thought more about it, I thought, well, you know, if you read it in the context of somebody who's gay, who's writing in a, in a, in a world in the 50s where, you know, homosexual, uh, you know, a lot of the acts he describes are illegal, you know, there's a plaintiveness about every line starting with please master and the whole poem is basically about the other guy's pleasure like just do all this stuff to me so that i can so that you'll 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 be really turned on and that's you know there's something it it becomes more of a beautiful poem and i thought you know maybe it would be maybe it is just cowardly of me to think oh no i don't want to bring that into the classroom especially since you know students it's not like they've never heard of this stuff it's not like they can't go online and actually see people doing that stuff so if it's going to get them excited about writing and reading why not <laughs> it's going to get them excited about something yeah. <laughs> well let me let me let me ask you just before i go to the other panelists let me ask you to put on a different hat so not too long ago your son uh, was a high school yeah. student so, um, I yeah, don't know. I yeah. know. I, I first I thought, wow, what if he brought that home and that was the poem that he was reading in class? And yeah, you know, I, I think I would be I would be a little bit uncomfortable about it, but I would have to. Th- I mean, it would be, I think, perhaps a productive kind of discomfort. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I like a productive kind of discomfort. Sure. But I, I mean, she makes it go ahead. Yeah. I, well, first of all, I can't believe Irene was dancing while she gave that answer, yeah. right? which I think <laughs> is great. Um, I, I read the poem, too, and I have to say I was uh, uh, initially uh, disquieted. It was like 50 shades of, whoa. <laughs> and it, it's definitely sort of full circle with because I know high school students are seeing 50 shades of gray. Mm-hmm. And there's an aspect of that in there. However, would my daughter, should she bring this home and, and read it, I might not be uncomfortable. Were she to ask me to help her process it, I might be a little uncomfortable, but I, I'd probably address it. Uh, but, but I have to say it, it's slightly disquieting. Well, you know, I mean, as uh, the youngest person here, we should uh, – uh, uh, she's not responsible for the activities and attitudes of uh, the generation that's in high school and college right now. But I did notice in some of the articles that I read about this, Tracy, that another thing that happened was that students said that they were upset. A few students said this was upsetting, which is I think kind of a thing that happens now. You know, I mean – I'm upset. That upset me. But I don't. The student uh, brought it in. That's that's right. a very well, interesting that was, twist for that me. Was, that but was what a, a teaching moment to to be able yeah. to learn about. You know, what about it upset you? Why are you upset? And how do you deal with that? You know, how do we kind of talk about it? How do we have that conversation? Not just in the classroom, but at home with your parents. You know, what about this? You know, made you uncomfortable? Were you made uncomfortable? Did you not understand it? You know, talk about it. I'm not saying that my parents would have had that conversation with me. They absolutely would not have. But at the same time, I think when students say that they're upset about something, it's a place to be able to talk about that, not just say, oh, no, no, then we we won't make you upset. We won't make you uncomfortable. I'm so sorry. We'll punish the teacher. It's 
okay, so let's let's figure it out. So you would come down uh, pro teaching it in a high school class? Yeah, I would. Yeah. I would. I'm not saying that I would have been completely comfortable with it in high school myself because I was a very, very innocent high schooler. And so some of this, frankly, might have needed to be explained a bit more <laughs> to me at that point. But to have that conversation, have the conversation about why it was important in its time frame and what path it paved for future literature. There is the, the tension between the world as I would like it to be and the world as it is. Um, and so in the world that I, as I would like it to be, that, that poem could be taught, that poem could be read kind of on the spur of the moment by a teacher who's feeling at the spur of the moment, yes, this is a good idea. The student brought this in. I'm going to read this poem and not have to run it by some kind of faculty committee, which would absolutely 100 percent tell them no anyway, um, and, and, and that things would work themselves out. But the reality is that, I mean, this once again is sort of Dionysian impulses surfacing in what's supposed to be a pretty Apollonian environment, the public school system. The public school system has all kinds of rules and codes and regimentation. It's different from a private liberal arts college. Uh, There are a lot of different stakeholders. And there is this kind of latent fear among um, a certain segment of the American public that one of the things that's going on in the public school system is they're going to teach your kids how to be gay and there's nothing you can do about it. They're just going to do that. So uh, is it that what if it had been a woman in the poem? You know, I mean, what what exactly is the objection that people have to it? I, I don't know is the answer it? to that, but I'm, yeah. I'm guessing the homoerotic nature of it. I, I mean, I'm guessing those kinds of that kind of language involving a man and a woman would have excited a certain amount of perturbation, uh, but maybe not quite as much as the fact that it's a man talking about what he wants a man to do. Okay, that's interesting, because that didn't even occur to me when I read it, because I was, I was just thinking of the sort of explicit sexuality of it. Mm-hmm. But I also um, think, you know, we're in Connecticut, which is a pretty liberal, you know, environment for that, and the fact that it stirred a little dust up here. Imagine if, if that guy was in Texas and read that. Yeah, but isn't but that's literature, you know. I mean, you can't just say we're going to teach yeah, literature in a yeah, yeah. But I mean, I think it's, I think the key thing is the discomfort in in learning how. To, I'm punching the table here while I gesticulate. <laughs> that's antihistamines, baby. Um, I think the discomfort is good for everybody. Mm-hmm. You know. I mean, I come from the Twain House, where a lot of what we discuss is whether or not Huck Finn should be taught in schools. I and that's an, that. that's another piece of literature that's part of our history. It's a great American novel that is, you know, for most part for young folks to read. And it's stirred up so much controversy over the years. But it's something that, you know, I land, of course, on, on the side that it should be taught to, to kids, even though, you know, there is language in it that may make you uncomfortable and that we don't accept now again now. But back then it was acceptable. It was part of the history. Yeah, I think it's interesting that students have so much like uh, access to all kinds of material uh, online. You know, they, they can see anything. They can see any brutality, explicit sex, anything. And but at the same time, we seem to want to have more of a narrow, you know, sort of scope about what happens in school. And there's really a problem there because the students, you know, they're not really protected from anything, even if they're protected in school. In a way, they're, it's, it, it, it just makes school less appealing. And you're not teaching them how to process the things that they are being exposed it, exactly. to outside of school. I think also, you know, Jim was saying this was happening in Connecticut. And I think what this also kind of exposes a little bit is is the way in which – I'm trying to think of a way to – I didn't really think this through carefully, so I want to phrase it the right way. But, you know, we, we in Connecticut and a lot of other states, we, for very good reasons, um, are saluting a different set of – 
principles these days, and particularly the idea of gay marriage. And gay marriage has been, in fact, and we see these wonderful, happy scenes in city halls all over the country where, where gay men and gay women uh, can get married and can enjoy some of the, uh, all, ideally, all of the, the franchises and benefits that, that heterosexual people have. Um, and I think it, there's, it's one thing to be comfortable with that, and it's another thing to be comfortable with such a vivid description of what gay people do together. And, and in some ways, I think one of the things the South Windsor thing kind of pries apart a little bit is this. I mean, and it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not confined to literature class, right? If we're going to be cool about this, we're going to be cool about gay people, and we're going to be cool about gay people getting married, uh, which I, I want us to be, then we have to, when we teach sex ed, have, we have to teach how to have safe gay sex. We can't just teach heterosexual sex. We've got to make it clear what gay sex is and how to do it as safely as possible and, and treat it in sex, edu- sex ed classes the way we treat heterosexual sex. And some parents who might say, oh, yeah, I really like Ellen DeGeneres, will flip out if their kids are being taught how to have safe gay sex. You know, I, I think this would have been probably different, even more different, if this was a, a poem about two women, which for some reason were none of us seem quite as offended by. Uh, or the general culture doesn't seem as offended by that. Um, it, young men are routinely exposed to that. And, and uh, I think, again, discomfort is good. And what, what you're saying about uh, educating people fully is good. And uh, the more that I hear you guys talk about it, the more I'm like, yeah, let's go for it. Um, well, I'm sure the teacher in South Windsor hopes that uh, our pleas reach the ears of the gods. Uh, but anyway, I think he's, he's, he's going to have some nervous weeks ahead of him. We have to take a little break. We'll come back with more of The Nose after this. Welcome back to The Nose, our Friday Cultural Roundtable. Uh, joining us today, Tracy Wu Fastenberg from the Mark Twain House, uh, musician and producer extraordinaire Jim Chapdelaine, and professor of Ginsburg and other topics at uh, Trinity College, Irene Papoulis. Although you're not a professor of anything right now, right? You're just you're on a sabbatical. You're thinking big That's thoughts. That's right. Um, all right. So if you have any big thoughts, uh, email them to Irene, <laughs> not, not to me. Uh, speaking of what goes on in colleges, everything came to a halt, writes the day of New London on the Conn College campus on Wednesday afternoon as uh, President Catherine Bergeron canceled all other events and called for a campus-wide forum to address a tenured professor's Facebook post comparing Gazan Palestinians to, quote, a rabid pit bull chain in a cage, regularly making mass efforts to escape. Uh, Gaza is in the cage because of its repeated efforts to destroy Israel and Jews. Andrew Pessin, a professor in the, uh, of philosophy at the college, uh, published on his personal Facebook page in August. It took a while for this to kind of filter out somehow. The blockade is not a cause of the current conflict. It is the result of the conflict. It cannot retroactively become its cause. Anyone who fails to recognize that clear and obvious fact is demanding the release of a rabid pit bull. And so this um, stirred up the can- – oh, all I have to do is talk about something. Yeah, actually, that won't work. Uh, my iPad's dying, so somebody's in here trying to help me charge it. But it's the wrong. It doesn't fit. It won't. It's like this kind of thing. Um, and and I, I don't need my iPad anyway. It's like Yoda telling you to turn off the computer and use the force. I'm going to use the force. The, um, 
<laughs> right, exactly. So where was I? Okay, so this campus is in an uproar. The campus is in an uproar because of this. Uh, and, and, and once again, we have people saying that was troubling to me, that was offensive to me. Uh, the professor himself has taken a – he's troubled now. He's taken a medical leave because oh, he's really? just – yeah, because yeah. he's freak, so freaked out uh, and so stressed out by all the stress that other people are expressing to him that he has to go take his medical leave. So he went home to Providence and his bathroom exploded. That's like – <laughs> I don't know why I'm the only person – I, that's literally true. Nobody responded to that when yeah. you yeah. shared his, that information. His bathroom exploded. I, this man's bathroom exploded. <laughs> and I am the only person who thinks, I mean, if I were him, I would think, well, maybe the Palestinians blew up my bathroom. I mean, really, they hate me that much. Really, really, really bad week. Right, yeah, exactly. I mean, like, his bathroom really exploded, too. And, like, people had to flee the building and there were fire Made the news and stuff exploded. Like that. Wow. Made the news exploded. Um, well, if there, I think if there's anything more inflammatory than talking about explicit gay sex, it's talking about Israel versus Palestine. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, it's people. It's just such a trigger for so many people on each side. It's very, it's so very, very hard to talk about that the issue in a way that is reasoned because people have such emotional, mm-hmm. you know, intense emotional feelings on each side. But the question <clears throat> is whether he had a right to express his emotional opinion or not. You know, he and I think he does. I think it's his personal Facebook page. He, yes, he's a professor. Yes, he's at, at a college, but. At the same time, this is something that affects him personally. You know, so he's allowed to have whatever opinion that he wants. And and I actually didn't think that that was – I would not consider what he said hate speech, though. There's there's a lot worse things that people have said on both sides of uh, of this. It's not certainly not flattering. No, um, um, and it's definitely opinionated. But he's definitely entitled to it. I I don't see how you what the blowback is about a person posting their personal views on would, their personal page. But would a racist view be the same? Would you say the same? I'd say we we would be talking about it. Well, um, so here, but here's, I, I'm, not, I'm not condoning either. I'm not taking a position on it. I just would say he has a right to say what he wants to say. So here's the tripwire that I think is being kicked here. First of all, one of the things that he has subsequently said is he was really specifically talking about Hamas. This was part of a longer exchange. He wasn't saying all Palestinians are pit bulls. Um, he was saying Hamas is, a, is metaphorically a pit bull. But the tripwire that's being kicked, I think, is Palestinians are dogs. Um, that And so the argument that's being made is that's a dehumanization. And it's a specific – I mean I, I don't really know sort of Middle East rhetoric well enough to, to be sure of what I'm talking about. it, But I feel like that's – I mean one of the ways that this argument does sort of play out is like people who are, who are, who are rabidly anti – uh, I guess I use, use my own dog, dog metaphor, yeah. <laughs> but people who are, are fervently anti-Palestinian will sort of talk about them that way. They're like wild animals, you know. So that's part of the problem here. And but I, I, I I'm with Jim and, and with Tracy on this. That when I first read about this, I was bracing myself to read the actual Facebook post. And I read the actual Facebook post, and I thought it was sort of the opposite of reading the Ginsburg poem. I sort of thought. Oh well, that's not that really. That's really not that bad. And and but I also thought of the case of the Reverend Bruce Shipman, who was at Yale. He was a chaplain at Yale last year. Um, he was quoted as he wrote a letter to the editor of the New York Times, I think, saying something that was that branded him as anti-Semitic. I mean, basically, the gist of the letter was, uh, yes, anti-Semitism is a problem in Europe. Uh, if you want to do something about it, one thing that you could do is that American sponsors and supporters of the Netanyahu regime could get them to dial down the violence against the Palestinians, uh, and maybe some of the uh, anti-Semitism would go away. And people f- freaked out about that. He lost his chaplaincy. Uh, he, he was uh, forced to leave. And I thought at the time, that's wrong. It's wrong 
and I think it's and I think it's wrong if this guy. I mean, I wish he had a little was a little tougher, like he didn't take medical leave the minute the going got tough. But I I, I think we have to just to back to what you're saying. You're absolutely right. If you want to cause a firestorm on a college campus, just talk about this subject. But boy, if we can't do it any better than this, I mean, if people can't endure you know imp- opinions that they don't like, uh, we're never going to get anywhere. I. Yeah, I, I have to agree with that. But I also think that that what he said was more offensive than maybe somebody who's outside the situation might see, you know, and mm. that there, that it is really worth being called attention to as something seriously offensive. Yeah, I know? think it's... Uh, it was, that, but that's part of the, part and parcel of posting something like that, right? If you're going to post something that's on the edge of controversy, you're inviting controversy. Product- it just, it just yeah. took a long time for the controversy to find him, it sounds like. But productive discomfort. <clears throat> That's the theme of the show, productive right, discomfort. Right. So that makes you uncomfortable. You know, it makes me uncomfortable. I mean, my sympathies tilt probably you know, a, a bit more to the Palestinians uh, at this moment. Um, and so it makes me uncomfortable to have this professor saying that they're dogs or that they're like dogs or something like that. But, I mean, I don't mind having a conversation with that guy, um, right. asking him a few more questions about what he meant. Uh, and, you know... Um, he and Bruce Shipman should have a, a dialogue somewhere halfway between Khan College and Yale, have a little forum or something. Uh, but I just don't, you know, I just, uh, it, it, it is that sort of thing. This thing upset me, so you have to leave. Right. <laughs> and it also gets back to our dancing grannies. I mean, you can say stuff, but we're going to tell you, here's 12 things that you could say. Right. Everything goes back to the dancing grannies. Right. Yeah, but there is some unproductive discomfort. You know, there is sometimes you can you can forbid people from saying certain things. I think. Yeah, well, but I guess maybe there's, yeah, a yeah. Certain, there's a so how a certain does this? It's probably racist what he said, right? So, how far over that line is that for you? But it's pr- even probably racist. I mean, it's not definitely racist. I mean, well, I think dog uh, in that world you, is well, considered. That's the problem in the in that world. Dog means that's a trigger word. Yeah, it's a trigger word. It is a racist. But yeah. if you say Hamas is like an attack dog, I mean, I don't know that that's racist, you know. Yeah. So it's it's complicated. Yeah. And all right, so but so we're going to take everything that we've done so far and plug it into one last thing. So and we're going to talk about somebody who has done something that is unquestionably racist. I mean, we can debate back and forth all this other stuff, sort of the gray area stuff. But obviously, what happened at that Oklahoma University bus, the SAE fraternity, everybody knows that's racist. Everybody knows that story. It's. Uh, uh, guys singing a horrible song about why there aren't any black members of their uh, fraternity. It evokes, it uses the N-word. It evokes uh, lynching as a productive solution to this problem. I mean, it was one of the most horrible things to watch in the world. So then one of the questions becomes, how, if you're one of the guys on that video, do you petition the human race to let you rejoin? Um, and so uh, this week, uh, one of those guys, whose name is Levi Pettit, appeared at a press conference. He was really surrounded by African-American community leaders whom he had uh, reached out to and whom he had met with. He made a profound apology. He said, although I don't deserve it, I want to ask your, for your forgiveness. Um, I never thought of myself as a racist, but the bottom line is the words that were said in that chant were mean, hateful, and racist. I never thought. <laughs> How can you even say that with a straight face after saying what he said? And he was leading the cheer, right? Uh, I, he apparently I think he was the ringleader. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think he may have been the ringleader. And I think he's taking the heat because he was caught on film. But I, I don't get how you walk this back. And I don't. I, I see this. He's surrounded by a network of professional apologists who are orchestrating every single move he makes. 
And and would he be apologizing for this if it was not on that little YouTube video? I would think not. Well, no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Yeah. I mean, that that goes without saying. However, we are, actually, I think I see this differently than everybody else here, but I want to hear from everybody else here. What, what are your thoughts about this? Um, my thoughts were I had a really, I first actually read it in the paper, the story of what he said, and then I watched the video. When I read it in the paper, I was kind of on his side because I felt like he was really showing some, you know, uh, I didn't know that I was racist, but now that I see, I see that I am is a really interesting move, I think. It's not just like, I'm not racist and I didn't mean anything. It's really trying to say maybe, I felt like, you know, maybe he was actually starting to think about things and, 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 and understand that you can throw these comments out as a cheer in a group that you do all the time, but it really means something. So I was sympathetic to him when I read, a, read it. But then when I saw the video, I felt like, ugh. You know, you mean the video of the, the chanting? The video of him. Oh, him. No, no, oh, no, him the, talking. Not, not the chanting, the, of him talking. I felt like he he just had that look of like, yeah, I'm going to say I'm sorry, of course, because I know I have to. I memorized so the I felt script. that it was a little different I'm not in deviating person. from the script. That, right. yeah. See, now that bothered you for some reason. You bothered brought that me up. too. It that, bothered really, you. that really bothered me. I think if you are sincerely apologetic and you really understood your wrongdoing, then you're going to be a little more candid in expressing that sorrow and, and apology. But he didn't go off his script. You know, he had the perfect visual going right, right. on. And, and, you know, one of the lines from the New York Times uh, said, you know, he deflected questions about where he learned the chant. You know, and he deflected a couple mm. other questions, too. He declined to answer them. I feel like if you're really sorry, you're ready to have that conversation. You can say, you know, I don't want to get the person in trouble who taught me the chant, but it was handed down to me from another brother or whatever. You know, share a little bit about that. Answer in your own words, because for all we know, he memorized, was reading from something no that doubt. was produced by somebody else. <sighs> and so I, I just I have a hard time believing that he's sincere. I want to because he's a young man. And I would think that as we go further into, you know, younger folks, my generation, that we've sort of moved past some of this racist stuff. Clearly, we haven't. You know, we've all seen Ferguson. But you hope that, you know, our, our next generation coming up will be beyond that. It, it's um, By the way, we have a minute or two extra to talk about this. Uh, if you want to call in at 860-275-7266, you have to do that right now, though. 860-275-7266 because we need uh, time for our endorsements. I, I, I was a little bit different from the three of you in the sense that I sort of feel like we live in the society right now where people – do get caught a lot doing these things, you know, and, and we all read this John Ronson article from the New Yorker, uh, from the New York Times uh, Sunday magazine called How One Stupid Tweet Blew Up Justine Sacco's Life. It's a woman getting on a plane to go to Africa and she makes a tweet that's really stupid, almost a, um, implying that uh, she hopes she doesn't get AIDS, but then because she was white, she won't. Uh, she felt like it was a bad joke. She lost her job. She lost everything. By the time she got to Africa, she was like this famous person on Twitter and her own family was saying, we can't be with you. You know, you're too horrible. We can't be with you. And and so this and the, that, the Ronson article mapped out a whole bunch of other people who in similar ways have just screwed up so badly that they've lost jobs, that they've like, you know, haven't left their house for a year. Uh, you know, the, it, it's like that. And if we're going to have that kind of culture, it's like you have to have a path to citizenship for illegal immigrants. <laughs> I think you need, a, you need a path to citizenship or human rights. For pe- people are going to do these things, and either we're going to keep them as permanent social lepers, you know, for the foreseeable future, or we're going to have to kind of almost work out social code saying, well, "Here's what." Yeah. So and so, I thought this guy at least he went and faced some African American people. You know, and no, she's just—it doesn't cut any, it cuts <laughs> no. no ice with her. 
Um, that, they, they're, so they're that didn't help at all. distinctly different no. um, events. One is um, if you read her Twitter feed, she has a bunch of pretty lame jokes, and this was an attempt at a lame joke. Mm-hmm. If you look at him chanting these overtly racist, hateful things and leading the pack – it just to me, his apology fell in line with this whole series of American apologies going back to Jimmy Swaggart or, or Anthony Weiner where it's carefully orchestrated. It's theatrical. It's designed to have some sort of impact. And then they go on. But do, does, does he have another – you know, is there any cho- – like what if he really did feel remorse in a way he would have said – like so I sort of feel like time will tell. We can't tell now. I, but it will be interesting to see to, – even to follow his case and to see is he, is he really going to, um, you know, act on his, his newfound – understanding of racism or is he just going to go back to being a regular you know go to another school and be the same frat boy at another school i don't know but so in a way we can't tell because I what could you say i would just love to hear those sort of back channel phone call dad you won't believe what happened <laughs> can you call yeah. uncle bernie the lawyer and, and get but, get a pr firm together really quick yeah but i mean i do think it's good in, in in response to what colin said before you know that that's one really good thing about the internet i would say in the sense that people have always said racist things to each other behind closed doors and just nothing has happened and nothing has changed as a result of it. And now it's very, very, very almost impossible to get away with that. And even, you know, down to the the, the, the cameras on the police cars where the police are doing these horrible things, you know, th- that's a good thing because we, we have to talk about it. We don't have a choice. Discomfort. Yeah, this is, yeah, this is discomfort. I'm not sure it's productive this time. But uh, I mean, well, the, the thing where yeah. people get caught, that part's Some are and some aren't. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk to uh, Joe in West Hartford. Hi, Joe. You're on the air. Hey, thanks a lot. Uh, I don't want to get too uh, involved in the conversation, but I, I do want to point out that NPR has a show called Snap Judgment, where there was a uh, black man who took it upon himself to establish dialogue with a leader of uh, uh, the Ku Klux Klan. I believe it was Maryland or that area of the country, and sat down with this guy and established so much dialogue over the course of time that he actually got him to hang up his robe and renounce his ways. And if you could turn a leader of the Ku Klux plan back on his own opinion you know this kid who obviously made the wrong decision can be helped as well i'm not saying we should open up our arms and just say uh let's welcome everybody who's racist back to society but you know people can be saved if they want to be i the other thing about this i'm gonna we've got some really interesting calls coming in and i'm really apologetic but i in order to get to um Endorsements. We're going to have to stop. The one, you know, the Ronson article we read. It, at one point, it looked back at Puritan times, at colonial times, and how people were punished. Uh, and and one thing that I was thinking is, if you were lucky enough not to be executed, uh, say in Connecticut in the 1600s, because you had a baby that looked too much like a pig or something, uh, which somebody was in fact educated, uh, they were executed for that. Um, but if you were lucky enough not to be, why do you know that? I just know. I just know it. It's because the, the implication: the pig looked so much like the baby. I think each. One of them had like a defective eye or something. Anyway, the implication was that this woman had, a, yeah, that somehow or other the, the, the it was no, it was bestiality. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Lord. yeah. It was like it was like that. So That's um, another poem, right? Yeah. So anyway, well, um, if you were lucky enough not to be executed for something like that, you could be flogged. 
And it's almost like, well, if you were put in stocks and whipped, or something, at least it was over at some point. <laughs> right, right. It was like, okay, we whipped you, go back to work. Maybe or that's, which, he's on probation now. He's yeah. on sort of societal probation. He has to sort of walk the walk. But yeah, I sort of feel like – And then, then, yeah. then welcome back. Do you just yeah, – I, I have faith that he can get there. I'm just not sure he's there and sincere yet. And right. I think you the, know, the, the actual time will tell act us the is truth. what I rejected, mm-hmm. the yes. actual yes. apology itself. What All right. Are, quick, uh, quick comment from Marsha and then we really do have to run. Hi, Marsha. Hi, Colin. Um, I read something in the New York Times and it could have been from a while ago. Um, Monica Lewinsky was talking at a TED Talk and she said to the people, raise your hand if you don't regret something that you did at age 22. Mm-hmm. Um, while I don't certainly condone anything this kid did, I think some of you are being kind of hard on him and he is a kid. Um, you know, when you go into the courts, they think differently about younger people. Uh, you know, their brains aren't always ready to be thinking. So that's it. All right. Thanks for your call. We're going to leave it there. If you have other comments, you can email me, Colin, C-O-L-I-N, at WNPR.org. Shame on you. Shame, shame on Shame, shame on you. This show is over. I'm going to hit the clubs and dance like a Chinese granny. Today's show was produced by Colin McEnroe and me, Kion Wolf. Our interns today are Kelsey Bissell and Sydney Lauro. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Bruno Mars. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton show Flash Mob Dancing to Peaches and Herb, visit our website, WNPR.org. On Monday's show, only the scramble knows what's on its mind. And now... Back to Colin. A special props to Greg Hill, who's been coming in here like a NASCAR pit crew trying to save me from my dying iPad. But you know what? I'm right. What I've got now, everything I need to know is on a post-it. Probably everything I do know is on a post-it. Anyway, very quickly, with five minutes left or so, let's do some endorsements. Irene Papoulos, what have you got? Okay, I have two books. Um, I'm, I'm really interested in repressive regimes and repressive everything I'm, uh, these days for some reason. Um, yeah. Anyway, so I read um, a memoir called Without You, There Is No Us, My Time with the Sons of North Korea's Elite by Suki Kim. She goes to, to North Korea to teach uh, in a Christian school, and she talks about it gives you a window. She's not a great writer, but it gives you a really interesting window into North Korea. And then I'm also still in the middle of this book, The Looming Tower, Al-Qaeda and the Road to 9-11, which is a really a wonderful book. book about how the development of Al-Qaeda and it teach it. it I learned something about ISIS in, in the process, too, even though ISIS hasn't begun yet. Lawrence Wright. Lawrence yeah. Wright. Yeah. Thank you. 2006. He wrote it. Yeah. Uh, all right, great. Uh, what have you got, Jim? Well, Chappell? nothing, nothing compared with that. Well, she's on sabbatical. Um, she's uh, I know. Okay, yeah. so uh, I'm I'm going to re-endorse Larry Wilmore on the nightly show because I I like the way he's kind of taking that in a slightly different direction. Um, this week, the Emperor of All Maladies, Ken Burns' uh, uh, sort of series on cancer is uh, is going to be shown, I believe, and uh, I would recommend you watch that. And if you get a chance, uh, the great writer Jimmy Webb is uh, playing tonight at the Kate and I believe tomorrow at the Iron Horse. But he's a must-see. He's written some of the greatest songs ever written. And I think I've seen what, what Jimmy's been doing lately, too, is coming and he'll sort of play, talk, play, talk. Right. And he he's, has very entertaining stories to tell. His story about driving around Ireland with Richard Harris, who, of course, sang MacArthur Park, a Jimmy Webb song, is uh, worth the trip to the Kate all by itself. Uh, Tracy, what have you got? Because I've eaten this three times this week. <laughs> Bears Smokehouse Barbecue. If you guys haven't made your I way. I still haven't been, no. 
Make your way down there. Um, they've got a location in downtown Hartford and one in Windsor. Um, and I actually just had them cater an event for me at the Twain House, and it was amazing. Was it just cater. for you? They just catered this? Actually, at the end, there were so many leftovers that I think it was just for me. <laughs> but it's really fantastic. And I have to say, I don't even like barbecue. If somebody said, let's go for barbecue, I'd say, let's go for something, anything but that. But it's fantastic. All right. So what have I got? Well, first of all, I want to recommend to you – well, I want to recommend to you the Hartford Improv Festival, which is um, kind of organized by our friends at CT Improv. It's down at the Spotlight Movie Theaters um, and improv groups from all over America, from the West Coast, from Charlotte, North Carolina, in from New York and down from Boston. Uh, they're all coming there and they're all kind of competing with one another. And you, I think you buy a ticket. You, you can buy sort of you know passes for the whole thing or whatever – or you can just buy a ticket for an hour of improv, which is going to be probably three different improv groups. So anyway, improv comedy is a lot of fun. If you've never tried it, uh, go and watch. I want to remind you that David Edelstein, it's less than two weeks away. David Edelstein will be joining me on stage at Watkinson School, part of the Freshly Squeezed series. That's uh, Wednesday, April 8th. Uh, go on, go to Watkinson.org or call Watkinson to get your tickets now for that. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, we usually have big panels and stuff like that, and I decided just David and I would sit there and argue about things. Um, and then lastly, in honor of Allen Ginsberg and the problems at South Windsor High School. And I'll have to post this at WNPR.org on our show page, I think, because it's hard to find. On a website called, I always call it Berfois. I don't know if I'm even pronouncing the website right. It's B-E-R-F-O-I-S. Uh, there's a poem called Growl by somebody named Flip uh, Notre Dame, uh, Philip Notre Dame, and he has taken um, Ginsberg's howl and updated it for sort of the uh, post-2008, you know, kind of it's all about sort of horrible Wall Street bankers and, you know, uh, dreadful people who kind of wreck the economy uh, and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, um, that's, a, that's a great thing to do. And the whole, our whole show page, there will be videos of dancing grannies uh, and all kinds of stuff. It'll all be up at WNPR.org. You can look for the tab that says Shows. That will drop down. You can find the Colin McEnroe Show that way. We do uh, encourage you uh, to email me, Colin, C-O-L-I-N, at WNPR.org. Thanks uh, once again to Tracy Wu Fastenberg, to Jim Chapdelaine, to Irene Papoulis. We'll be back on Monday with the scramble. We know not what the scramble will be about. It's cozy, like a Cracker Barrel. Yeah, we'll be laughing, talking, joking, talking about this and talking about that. And talk about everything as a matter of fact. Oh, yeah. Talk about Torrington, Vernon. Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, getting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 on the radio, I'm 117 years old, and I can still dance. Don't believe me, just watch. I'm okay. It's a new dance I do it on the floor.